About 20 years ago, I was teaching at the Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria and had in one of my classes a priest from South Africa. And it was right after apartheid had ended. And I will never forget his sharing how difficult it was to minister in a church whose entire purpose apparently had been fulfilled. The church had been so bound up with trying to end apartheid that once apartheid ended, they kind of felt flat, a little bit without purpose, weren't sure what they were up to, had to re-commit uh, themselves to fundamental reasons they existed in the first place. I thought about that as I read, no sooner had the underclass of beings who were considered slightly less than human and therefore enslaved, they were called apiru, and they were led by Moses out of, the wilderness, out of Egypt and bondage and slavery and into the wilderness where they were formed as a people, the Hebrews, the people of Israel. But after they got out, after the Passover, as they got into the wilderness, things must have been pretty flat. And they complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And they were hungry. And they said, maybe we'd be, why couldn't we just die in Egypt? They were hungry and they were afraid. They were hungry for bread. Yes, but they were also hungry for purpose. And they moved quickly to responses of fear and envy, afraid of dying and envious of those with plenty. We all know that sense of coming down from the mountain, of completing some great task, of meeting a goal, of celebrating, only to find that life the next day has lost just a little bit of its savor. And it actually goes on pretty much as it did before in some ways, that what used to be merely normal now seems a little flat, somehow a little more difficult. Margaret Macmillan's uh, book on the peace after the First World War, Paris 1919, makes clear that the painstaking work of crafting a peace was at least as hard, if less heady and less bloody, than the war itself. There's an old adage that says, begin with the end in mind. But when the end is achieved, we will sometimes find we have treated our immediate purpose as an ultimate goal, and we've not looked beyond it for real meaning. How many people have striven for a new position, bishop or senator, corporate bigwig or class president, only to find that they have no stomach or aptitude for the work itself? Thank God for term limits for some of these poor benighted souls. The equally old adage of be careful what you wish for has wisdom to offer here. Don't start a war for war's sake, but consider your outcome and what you want for peace. Don't be, don't be uh, seduced by the crowds and the adulation, but make a sober assessment of the work that goes with the office you are seeking. Consider your motives as best you can do and not end up whining in the wilderness about how you'd have been better off in your bondage. As I thought about the choice that faced the voters of Scotland this week, I became clear there was no especially right answer. Seems they've made a sober assessment and a real choice. Now they have to sort out what the future will be as part of the union. Independence would have been difficult also, but they would have sorted it out, unintended consequences and all. In other words, independence nor union, neither are the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal surely is life, meaning, purpose, happiness for all. 
And that's as true in Scotland today as it was last weekend. What we're really talking about, from ancient wilderness to personal choices to political reality, are motives. We know that many goals are good and purposeful, and the pursuit of them can often be valuable in and of themselves. What is less clear sometimes is our motive, and that's where the gospel prompts us to look. Hard work looking at our own motives. A good parable is like worship itself. It turns us toward what really matters without defining everything too precisely or too immediately. We don't need to be too quick when we hear this parable of the laborers in the vineyard. We don't need to be too quick to allegorize it and say God's the owner. That owner is as caught up in the economic realities of the parable as any of the workers. That owner is as caught up in a culture of more and more and more as much as that priest in South Africa as much as any of the characters of the story. The owner has resources to hire as many people as he wants, and he chooses for whatever reason to give life. One day's wage was barely enough to subsist for one day, gave life to many who had not worked a full day. So we can think about economic justice. We can think about fairness. I mean, it's an intensely irritating parable, if you think about it. (laughs) Because it's not fair. We can think about uh, economics, or we can think about theology. Is God capricious? Is God just doing whatever he wants willy-nilly? We can think about whether or not life is fair when none of us seem immune from the reality that one person survives disaster and another not. One person dies too young from some bizarre illness and another does not. One person works for minimum wage in a fast food outlet while another plays eight or ten football games a year for millions and on and on and on. The parable can take us in many directions, but underlying all of them, sooner or later, we get to the same thing that afflicted the ancients in the wilderness, fear and envy. We might well think that stinginess is the opposite of generosity, but stinginess is born of fear and born of envy. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard, in the end, leads us to recognize our own fears and our own envy of those more fortunate than we are. Most of us don't think we're governed by those things, but all of us have them at some level. Are you envious because I am generous, asked the owner of the vineyard. Is it possible that we can rejoice, really rejoice, in the good fortune of others without having that little question mark about why we can't enjoy that good fortune ourselves without becoming stingy, without becoming resentful and allowing those responses of fear and envy to govern our life. Have we not all met someone who's been dealt a hard blow by life, for whom we have great compassion, but who has responded by being fundamentally angry ever since? I doubt that you're here because you got angry with God early. It's just colors everything. And we know that we don't have to be like that. We don't have to respond to hardship and challenge by being resentful and angry and fundamentally unable to move on and holding tight to our grudges and our unhappiness, unable or perhaps unwilling to see the manna from heaven that is spread all around us, even when things are really tough.
and even when we're hungry and even when we're whining. Friends, one antidote to our fears and our envy is the spiritual practice of generosity by which we live more freely and less fearfully. When in doubt, give a gift. When jealous or resentful, make a gift to someone else. When having a hard time sharing the joys of others, give something away. I will never forget, as long as I live, visiting a refugee camp outside Khartoum in Sudan. There was not enough food for nursing mothers to generate milk for their infants, so they banded together and shared their meager sustenance so that some of them could nurse the babies each day while the others went hungry. These women received a small team of guests from Northern Virginia, and they gave us a gift. The gift was a song, and we asked, what are they singing? The words of the song translated were something like, God does not mean for us to be here but we are happy to be alive. They gave a gift. They gave what they could. Consider your motives for all those projects, ambitions, hopes, desires that make worthy goals. And then remember what really matters. Let us respond to the gospel asking that we may recognize the manner that sustains our lives and so live generously ourselves, freed from fear, freed from envy. In silence, let us pray.